I've always been quite sensible with money. But on the other hand, I had a lot of anxiety around it. And sometimes that led me to be quite self-flagellating and to panic over situations that I didn't need to panic over and to not necessarily make the best decisions because I was worried about what things would cost or maybe just sometimes didn't allow myself to enjoy life and enjoy the money that I did have as, as much as I should have. I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and host of The Wallet. Today, I speak to Otega Wagba. She's a writer, speaker, and consultant, and her debut book, Little Black Book, made the Sunday Times bestseller list. She's also just published her third book, We Need to Talk About Money, a personal and candid memoir exploring her relationship with money. We Need to Talk About Money was born out of a lack of cultural transparency around finances. It follows Otega's process in uncovering our deep-rooted beliefs and patterns around money and discusses how she overcame financial anxiety. So today on The Wallet, Otega shares her early experiences with money, what money means to her, and explains how we can all begin a journey of introspection to better understand our own attitudes towards money. We discuss the role privilege plays in the workplace and how the culture of don't ask, don't tell is detrimental to everyone, but especially affects women, people of color, and minorities when negotiating salaries and fees. We look at how Otega's relationship with money has evolved over time and how you can learn to enjoy what you earn when you're prone to worrying about money. Please note that we are not certified financial advisors, and the articles and information made available on Vestpod and this podcast are provided for information and educational purposes only and do not constitute financial advice. You advise to consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Good morning, Otega. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Good, I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I'm catching you at a very exciting time because you've just published your third book. We need to talk about money. I've really enjoyed reading the book. I'm sure it wasn't easy to write and research. It's extremely personal, but it's also, you know, cultural, super well documented. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the book today. We're going to talk about money. But can I ask you to please introduce yourself for people who don't know you already? Sure. So my name is Otega Uagba and I am a writer primarily. So I actually started out my career working in advertising for about five years. And then I left that behind about six years ago now. God, that's gone really fast. <laughs> um, and essentially at that point started writing and, and then became a journalist And at the same time as that, I launched a platform called Women Who, which was for creative working women. And I ran that for four years alongside my writing. And I also do sort of various other things. I host a podcast called In Good Company. I do a bit of public speaking, do a bit of brand consultancy. But my main sort of line of work these days is writing. So why did you write We Need to talk about money and how was the, the process like? The reason I wrote it is the title of the book, really. I think, you know, this is something that's been on my mind for a long time. And, the, you know, the kind of the inspiration for it really came about actually in the run up to the publication of my first book. So I published a book called Little Black Book in 2017, which is sort of like a mini career handbook for 
for working women, particularly those who are in the creative industries or who happen to be self-employed. And the idea for this book actually came to me in the run-up to the publication of that book because, you know, it was my first book. It's very exciting. There are events being planned, you know, promotion being planned, and I'm getting all these texts and messages from from my friends or from journalists or from publicists and from my publisher just being like, oh, wow, it's so exciting. And don't get me wrong, it was a very exciting period of time, but I was also feeling very anxious about money. And specifically, there was this one evening where I remember where I was walking home. So at that point in time, I was still living at home with my parents. And, you know, I'd only been self-employed for about a year, a year and a half at that point. So I was still very much figuring out the money side of things, how to make money, what my career was going to look like. You know, I I didn't really know how my career was going to pan out. And as a result, I was feeling really, really anxious about money. I wasn't making that much money either. Like I, th- I think there's also a bit of a, a myth around authors and, and book publishing that, you know, you're rolling in it, but you know, that really wasn't the case at that point in time. And, you know, it's still, still not the case now, but <laughs> definitely back then, you know, it, the amount I was paid for my book, it was in no way a life-changing sum. So I just remember walking home one evening feeling really anxious. And then I just thought to myself, I cannot be the only person who feels this way about money and this kind of tension between what I knew the kind of external perception was and my kind of internal and emotional reality. And that was the point at which I, you know, decided to write this book, started making notes from that point on, because I kind of just really wanted to start a conversation, like a really honest conversation about money. And also the work that I'd done with women who up until that point, the things that people had responded to most were conversations and events about money. And so I just thought, we all want to talk about it. We all have questions. We all have things we want to say, but we're not really saying them. And that's kind of when I got the idea for the book. Yeah. And in the book, I think that's really what you achieve. You talk about your personal journey. That's not easy for anyone to really, you know, like sort of expose themselves and talk about their, their own finances. So thank you so much for, you know, setting a, an example and, and, and show, like talking about your own life. Can I ask you what is what is money for you today and as it evolved, you know, year after year and maybe writing this book, you, you maybe had to do a little bit of work or thinking on your own relationship with money. So I, I just wanted to understand how, how you changed your relationship with money. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think to me these days money represents security and freedom. I think about money and, you know, the work that I do and the money that I earn from it and my general finances. For me, it's about being secure, knowing that I can pay my bills, knowing that I can deal with any situations that come up, any unexpected expenses and that sort of thing. And then also it's about freedom, being able to do what you want to do, being able to travel. You know, I love to travel, being able to socialize, which is important. But for me, it's, you know, the freedom to say no to certain sorts of work um, and and be in a financial position to say no to certain sorts of work, to be able to choose what work I do do, you know, whether or not I want to write another book. And when I do that, it's for me, that's what it represents. And then everything else on top of that, like, oh, okay, I can go out for dinner and oh, okay, I can buy this nice dress. Those are really, really nice things to be able to do. But for me, the primary goal is to, to be able to sleep at night and to know that for the next six months, a year that I'm taken care of. And and that's really how I operate. Um, 
And I think in terms of how my relationship with money has evolved over the years, I mean, I, you know, I, I talk about that in the book and I definitely had to do a lot of introspection, as, as you said, to in order to kind of communicate that to other people, I first had to kind of unpack what my relationship with money is. I spent a lot of my 20s, all of my 20s, basically feeling very anxious and panicky about money. And, you know, in my case, I think that probably stems from kind of my childhood and, and early teenage years where my family didn't necessarily have a lot of money. Um, and I think that kind of really embedded itself in my psyche. And as I kind of got older and into my 20s and started working, started earning money, I just I just always had this fear and slight panic around money. So on the one hand, I'm very financially literate and always have been, and I'm very good with money in a technical sense. Like I've always saved. I've never had credit card debt. I've always been quite sensible with money. But on the other hand, I had a lot of anxiety around it. And sometimes that led me to be quite self-flagellating and to panic over situations that I didn't need to panic over and to not necessarily make the best decisions because I was worried about what things would cost or maybe just sometimes didn't allow myself to enjoy life and enjoy the money that I did have as, as much as I should have. But it's something that actually the, the process of figuring that out in order to write it for the book, I think has allowed me to become a bit more rational around it. And, and to, you know, I identified that as my pattern. And, you know, I talk about money scripts in the book, which is what this financial psychologist, Brad Kluntz, has identified. Everyone kind of has different money script and mine is money vigilance which is essentially as I've described you're quite nervous and anxious about money and as a result you're probably kind of over cautious with it I think identifying that has allowed me in those moments of panic to kind of take a step back and be like okay Otega you're doing that thing you do this situation is actually totally fine and I would say definitely in the past couple of years my emotional responses to money have changed you know, quite a lot and improved quite a lot. And, you know, I still kind of have those moments of panic, but also I'm able to identify that this is my pattern and then to kind of step in almost kind of the more sensible, rational side of me can step in and be like, I take it, this is fine. Just because you've got, you know, a couple of months ago, I had like a 600 pound repair bill for like a gas leak. And two or three years ago, that would have absolutely floored me. And not because I couldn't afford it, because I could have been afforded it back then but just that unexpectedness of it and you know that's a big sum whereas now when that happened you know earlier this year I was able to say Otega you're lucky that you can afford this sum and it's not going to affect your day-to-day life like I had savings and it's just what needs you know you don't have a choice about paying this you know you can't live with a gas leak you need to fix it this is what it's going to cost chill And I just, you know, moved on from it. And I don't think I'd have been able to do that a couple of years ago. So I felt quite, that was a moment where I really noticed that I'd made progress with how I um, relate to money. Yeah. And and how did you discover these these patterns and and beliefs you you had uh, about money? Is it just a matter of, you know, sitting down and doing all this work of introspection? Or did you get any help from, you know, maybe a coach or a therapist? Um, how can, you know, anyone start this journey? Because it can be like a, a big block to just mm. think about maybe childhood. And, and you talk a lot about, you know, childhood and how you, you know, your parents were uh, talking about money and maybe that, that could have 
you know, created a bit of stress. And, and you said, you know, I learned to regulate between what I wanted and what I thought my parent could afford. So how do you bring back all these, these memories about money? I mean, I think for me, the fact that I was writing a book about it was really instrumental in kind of discovering those patterns. When I discovered the work that Brad Kluntz has, has done on this area, that was definitely like an eye-opening moment because up until that point, I thought that the way I feel very cautious about money despite being kind of financially stable, I thought that, that was really irrational. And so it was really gratifying to me to read and, and to discover that that's, you know, that's a very established pattern. And that also things like having a scarcity mindset, these are really established patterns. And knowing that I'm not alone in that, and that these are very sort of normal ways to respond to money and to respond to perceived scarcity or lack of it, I think that was really helpful for me. And so I, in the book, I kind of talk about various patterns and various psychologies around money that people might have. And, you know, in my case, I think it was embedded in childhood for other people it might be different. It might be, let's say you've gotten a divorce and that was really financially disastrous for you. And then you kind of develop this caution around money. I think it's different for everyone and people will kind of need to look at their own experiences to discover how they've ended up that way. But for me, because I was writing about it and doing a lot of research, it was quite clear to me what had led to my money sort of relationship and also it was clear to me what my money relationship was and then that enabled me to kind of counter it essentially and to and to start kind of putting some rational thinking in where previously my responses had been purely purely emotional i think for for many people today money is and, and you mentioned that before but is linked also to like status and we see a lot of you know people who are trying to keep up financially i know at your you know early years at oxford you, you maybe tried to to you know to fit in with with your peers and i think money is a is a big part of that and now people fear that they're sort of missing out so money plays a big role in in society how do you see that today for yourself and maybe for you know what's what's happening in the world I think the fact that I am as I say inherently quite sensible and cautious about money means that I don't feel that much pressure to keep up or to keep up appearances yeah. like for me I'm like I am not gonna do this trip or buy this thing just to impress anyone else because that really kind of violates my own financial goals and You know, even at Oxford, there are obviously lots of very affluent people there. I didn't actually find it hard to keep up because as students, there's really quite a limited number of things that yeah. <laughs> you can spend your money on. Like, I think the differences only really start to emerge when you come into your 20s. But actually, we were all going to the same cheap bars and doing the same very, you know, even the richest person there really is still going to Tesco to buy a four pound bottle of wine because that's just what you do as a student. I was really worried about what to expect when I got to Oxford because I knew that everybody there would be super rich, but actually I was kind of pleasantly surprised and I found myself yeah. just kind of, you know, pleasantly in the middle and, and everything was fine. But in terms of status, yeah, I think that's a really difficult thing for a lot of people and especially now with social media. Like I know social media affects my spending and I try and catch myself. I think last winter I bought this coat that I'd seen so many influencers wearing and then it arrived and I was like, take it, this is not your style <laughs> at all. And, you know, thankfully I had the good sense to return it because it was, you know, it was a couple of hundred pounds, but I know a lot of people struggle with that. And I think even for me, it's kind of influenced 
almost the like level of lifestyle I feel like I should be living, especially in my twenties. It was like, you're surrounded by people in these gorgeous flats, wearing these gorgeous clothes, going on these incredible holidays. And you start to perceive that as normal when actually it really isn't. And I think weirdly kind of working in media and the more I kind of see the nuts and bolts behind it and know that, you know, half of this stuff is gifted or paid for. I I do now approach Instagram as inspiration. Yes. But I'm like, this is all advertising. It's very sophisticated advertising. And this is not most people's reality. This is not even influencers reality. Like without the subsidy of, you know, brand freebies and brand gifts, their lifestyles would not look like this. So I think for me, having an insight into how that actually operates and having friends who are influencers has been really, really helpful in allowing me a sense of perspective on it. And what is then the the role of uh, you talk a lot about privilege in the book and how you've been you know you've seen privilege around you and that people are quite reluctant to recognize that they have you know some some privilege and that's I think for me that's directly linked to to money and to mm. and to finances. Can you talk a little bit about what is privilege for you know for you your own definition and what role does it play in uh, in life outcomes? Sure, so I think about privilege as just any kind of unearned advantage that you have, you know, as a result of, say, your identity or your family background. So it's, you know, it can be class, it can be race, it can be gender, it can be educational privilege, you know, say if you're privately educated, it can be, yeah, as I said, you know, your background, if you come from a lot of money and and that sort of thing. And especially working in media and in journalism, I, I think that when I left advertising and got into journalism, that's where I really started to realize the extent to which privilege plays a role in people's professional success, because you have people who can do, you know, I didn't feel like I was in a position to do unpaid internships. And this is even despite the fact that my parents live in London, like in the suburbs. But even when I graduated and I was 21, I wanted to get into journalism, but I was like, I, I don't have the finances to work for free for years on end. And then to go into a career that's quite notoriously lowly paid, like I was like, I need like a decent job that pays decently. And that's why I ended up in advertising. But that's not a decision that some people had to make. Like I, I yeah. knew people who who could afford to like stick it out for all those years and could afford to go straight into journalism without worrying about their kind of financial future. And that is a huge privilege. But I think a lot of people who have privileges, as I say in the book, are really reluctant to admit to it or to admit to the fact that it's probably played a role in their life outcomes because they see it as diminishing their successes and diminishing their achievements. And, you know, in a way I'm like, maybe it does. Maybe like, I think if you look at someone who comes from a really working class background and has ended up as a top journalist, that is a different level of achievement from someone who comes from an upper middle class background, whose parents were both, you know, journalists who managed to get them internships and work experience just, you know, through nepotism. One person in that situation has had to work harder for it, even if they've ended up in the same position. But it frustrates me that people are unwilling to admit to that. But then I guess it's just pride, you know, and and, and also a slight level of shame. But it's, I just think it would be so much better if people were open about it, because it also gives other people a realistic kind of expectation of what their chances of success are. Like, it's good to know that, okay, well, actually this person, the reason they're getting loads of freelance bylines is because they live in a house that their parents bought for them. And so they don't have to worry about 
having a day job and making money. Like I, I think it's quite dishonest to obscure those elements of your of your life. And and I kind of always try and I'm very clear about the privileges I do have versus the privileges I don't have. So, you know, for me, even though I went to a private school on a full scholarship, I'm like, well, I still had a private education. Like that's still like, you you know, that's still a huge privilege and you see yeah, whether or not my parents yeah. paid for it, I still am benefiting from the immense advantage of a private education, which is something that I'm even more keenly aware of because I went to a state primary school and then a private secondary school. And I know that the people that I went to school with, not in a simple way, but like we ended up in different sorts of careers and having different outcomes in life. And the thing that I attribute that to in my case is quite possibly like to a large extent, the fact that I went to this elite school and then end up at Oxford and then have certain contacts, certain networks. And I'm not ashamed of that, but I think people should be honest about it. You know, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it, it has an impact also on on confidence. So if you've been, you know, privileged, you're, you're in a much better situation. So mm. you should be also more confident. Yeah. Asking, asking for more money, uh, going for, you know, you know, promotion um, in the, in the corporate world. And you just fit in, you know, you, you, yeah. you fit in. Like, I think a lot of workplaces are very much geared towards like quite sort of middle-class behavioral codes. And so often people who are middle-class enter the world of work and they know how things operate and they don't feel out of place. Like if you go into a, a newsroom and everyone there is middle class and you're working class, I imagine that that can feel quite alienating or I've heard that from people that can feel quite alienating. And then that impacts your performance or that impacts your ability to form bonds with people. And those are things that go on to influence your success. So it, it's really an advantage that carries throughout your entire life. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, talking about privilege, recognizing privilege and, and also educating yourself on the topic. If you feel, you know, you're privileged, but it's, it's how do you sort of give back a little bit and help maybe those who are not so privileged and, and try to, you know, include them in the organization and, and on more like, you know, social point of view, how, yeah, how you make it work for, you know, larger network. That's just like your, you know, your peers. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in the in the book, actually, when we talk about you know asking for more money, salary negotiation, that's a really hard thing to do. And I think when you by the time you left school, you decided that you had to make a lot of money, and that you say climbing the the career ladder as a woman <laughs> would be a breeze. And you you then realized actually maybe not, and it's gonna be it's gonna be quite tricky. I think you you avoided <laughs> these early conversations uh, about money in the workplace. So, so sort of you know don't ask, don't tell. And I think you've you've started to open up a lot more about you know money and pay and salaries so how can you know collectively we can help you know women and minorities to earn more by you know opening up about money and what are what are the things we can do i mean i think companies need to practice pay transparency essentially because often you don't necessarily know if you're being underpaid and i think that is also a huge issue like i'm, I'm always slightly reluctant to put the onus on individuals because you know, as I discuss in the book, there's this myth that, for instance, women don't ask for pay rises as much as men do. And that is just a myth. Like there have been studies done recently to show that women actually do ask for pay rises at the same rate that men do. But yeah, they're more likely to be turned down. And that is sexism at play. And I th I think if more companies employ pay transparency, 
it's a lot harder to get away with underpaying certain people if there are pay bans or if you share your kind of ethnicity and, and gender pay gaps. And it's like, huh, all of the male account managers are on 35K and all of the female ones or all the black ones are on 30K. You know, it's, it, it, it then becomes a lot more obvious. And, and so for me, I think that's really key, pay transparency. But I also think in terms of what individuals can do, it is kind of talking to your peers, you know, your colleagues, or maybe people you know doing similar jobs at other agencies to find out what the going rate is and then taking the next steps, whether that's asking for a pay rise or moving on to a different job if, you know, you don't think that your company's going to gonna pay or you ask them and they're not willing. And, and it's also about kind of having that evidence to be like, well, so-and-so who is a man is earning 5K more than me and I have the same experience as him or I have more experience than him. So I think there just needs to be more information and kind of greater transparency around what people are being paid because I think the kind of secrecy that shrouds that is what allows a lot of these inequalities yeah. and then to, the, there's to the, the workplace and, and out of the workplace and I guess you know for, for you and me it's also you know negotiating all these individual contracts when you're when you're a freelancer and this is really hard to find information so it's trying to find you know a network of friends definitely but I talk to several other people who are self-employed and who do similar things to me and we talk about money constantly like I'm often you know whatsapping a friend and be like oh so and so's offered me this what do you think and they'll be like a mm, bit low I was paid x by a similar company for a similar amount of work and you know I'm really really pro I'm such an open book about you know if, if a friend asks me what I'm being paid for a certain job or I'll volunteer that information if they're like oh I'm gonna work with so and so and I'm like oh by the way this is what they paid me so don't accept less than that those sorts of conversations, it doesn't take anything from me. And, and I hope it kind of helps us all because I want everyone else to be paid a lot as well, because then it means yes. I don't have to accept lower. If other people are accepting lower fees, then it means that I have to accept lower fees as well. So I want other people to be paid more because that just raises the, the bar for all of us. So it does benefit me as well. Yeah. And, and I don't know about you, but you know, once you open the conversation with a friend, like the, the, the first one is going to be difficult, like, you know, revealing your salary or your first, like your rates or whatever. But after you've done that, then great. You know, it's like, it's only upside and opportunities. Yeah. It's very easy. And the information you find out is often so surprising. Like I think I can think of many situations over the past few years where I've asked for more money as a result of conversations I've had with people where they've opened my eyes to like the kind of the true rates or what's possible. And I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really big part of, you know, my negotiation process is kind of checking in with other people to see what they think about the amount I'm being offered. And it's exciting because I mean, these people around you, I mean, for me, mostly women, they're sort of my cheerleaders also. So I would tell them, you know, I'm thinking about asking that. And they're like, no, you're ridiculous. You should ask for more. Right. They never tell me to ask for less. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. But, you know, when you're negotiating with yourself, you're like, yeah, this is too high. But actually, these girls are like, yeah, come on, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also linked to that, you, you've been told and, and you, 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 you have lots of like amazing stories in the book, but you've been told that, you know, your ambition was hard to manage. <laughs> so why are women told this, I think, more than than men? And what is the impact that has on, you know, maybe that had on your early career? Uh, I, I don't think today, but maybe, you know, in these early years. And what should women do when, when, they, when they hear these type of things? I mean, yeah, so that was a job that I had when I was sort of 23. Um, and it, 
looking back on it, it absolutely baffles me that somebody would tell a 23-year-old woman essentially to be less ambitious. And that conversation arose because I was pushing to get more responsibility because I wanted to progress. And that was the response that I got, that, you know, that I was told that my ambition was hard to manage and that I needed to be more of a team player. And I just don't think that's something that would have been said to like a male counterpart. And I do think that there is a double standard where power and money and credibility and ambition, you know, we're conditioned to see those things as the domain of like men. And when women display those, you know, a desire for those same things or are assertive, it's somehow coded as inappropriate or unfeminine because, you know, again, we're kind of socially conditioned to think that women should be agreeable and nice and docile and deferential. And certainly in the job that I was doing at the time, there were really gendered expectations in that particular office around male and female behavior. It was strangely retro. Um, so what I did, you know, was violating not only what that company considered to be kind of, you know, what was within their company culture, but also what society considers to be appropriate behavior for a woman, especially a young woman. And especially the fact that I was black, I think, you know, also plays a role in that because I think black women are very often coded as aggressive or hostile for displaying the same behavior that white women and white men display. And at the time, you know, I was 23, so I completely internalized it. And and I thought that I thought that the person who t- I thought she was right. And I, you know, I cried and I was like, okay, I'll be more of a team player. And, you know, just, yeah, so full. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, just kind of vowed to like, I guess, kind of sit on my ambition a bit, but you know, my ambition has gotten me where I am. Like, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing to be ambitious. Like actually one of the things that attracts me most to people, like even in my friends is that they're all super ambitious. Like I, I find that really, I think that's a really positive quality and a really positive trait. So yeah, it's, it's baffling to me that that was, uh, presented as a negative thing. And I, I just hope that other women who might find themselves in a similar position know that that is incorrect, that there is no such thing as being too ambitious, especially in that context of where it's like, oh, you're too ambitious for this office, you're too ambitious for this team. Like, You really have to question why someone is saying that to you and consider whether they would say that to a man because I just don't think men get told that I've never never heard that Mm. about a man that they're too ambitious and actually you I mean you talk obviously a lot about race also in the book and for black women it's important to be this extra ambitious because there's more barriers there's more challenges and you say something you say blackness has always been profitable but actually being black well that's another matter entirely so for black women, you know, joining the the corporate world or, you know, launching their businesses, freelancers, if you had like a few things, you know, to help them level up and for, you know, for, for me also, how, you know, how can I, how can I help? I'm always wary about giving advice that suggests that especially black women need to change the way they behave because these are structural issues, right? I think that this is going to be an issue. And to not internalize it and to not internalize other people's, you know, racism and prejudice. I think something that would have been really helpful for me, you know, when I was in my 20s would have been to realize that I wasn't the problem. Because as I say, I internalized a lot of the comments and and the, the obstacles that I faced as like evidence of my own incompetence or evidence of not being, of me not being able to maneuver, you know, through the workplace correctly 
And now with the benefit of hindsight, I can see that, you know, these were really gendered and racialized issues. And I think it would have been really helpful for me to have been aware of that when I was younger. And, you know, the steps you then take in response to that, I think are so, they differ based on each individual person's situation and especially their financial situation, their ambitions. But I think something that I was really keen to do in the book was to identify these various dynamics and microaggressions that women might face because often I don't think people realise what's happening to them until it's either pointed out to them or they hear somebody else's story or, yeah, they, you know, a few years down the line, they then look back and think, oh, okay, that's what was going on there. So I think for me it's to just not internalise the racism, essentially. Yeah, understanding that these are not normal and that, you know, you shouldn't accept basically these these things. Can we talk a little bit about Woman Who? Sure. And, you know, that's, you know, the business uh, you started. And can you tell me a little bit more about the early days of launching the business and why did you, did you start it? Yeah, so I launched Women Who in 2016, in the summer of 2016. And I'd actually been thinking about it for a good year or so beforehand. I essentially got the idea when I started working at Vice, which, as I write in the book, was a really kind of sexist and, and, and toxic workplace. And I wasn't enjoying the work that I was doing either. And so I wanted like a sort of creative outlet and a way of connecting with other creative women. But I didn't really have time to to work on it when I was working full time. And, and so when I left you know, advertising at the end of 2015, I was like, I'm going to just try and set up this platform and just see what comes of it. And so it was, you know, a mixture of like online content, digital content, resources, and events that I organized. And the aim of it was really to connect, you know, creative working women, particularly those who are kind of exploring non-traditional career paths, you know, so being self-employed, setting up their own businesses, you know, similar to what I was doing at that time. And I set up to help other women because I did feel like I had resources to offer. But I also felt like I got a lot out of it and learned a lot out of it just from the various women that I met and the conversations that I had. And so I ran that for four years. And during that time, you know, I hosted dozens of events. I I created a podcast, which is still going. I created a newsletter, which is still going. Um, and, you know, kind of created various worksheets and digital downloads. And it was honestly one of the most fulfilling things that I'd ever done. I brought it to an end because it, it felt like it had come to kind of a natural um, conclusion and, and there are now so many platforms in that space that it didn't feel quite as necessary as it, it did in 2016 but certainly when I launched it you know there were a couple of platforms for working women but often they required you to be at a certain level in your career like you know associate creative director and I was like well that's not really fair because those people already <laughs> did pretty well so <laughs> exactly I'm like how do we get to that point so that was one thing I wanted it to be really inclusive, so open to all. So it was always either free or really low cost to access the resources. And I wanted it to be really practical because another thing that I found with kind of women's platforms is that there was a lot of kind of hashtag feminism and, you know, it was all about working with brands and putting on events with brands. And you didn't actually go away from their events with practical resources or practical tools or practical knowledge. And for me, the ideal Women Who event was when I'd look out at the audience and everyone has got their head down scribbling in notebooks. Like that for me was like, okay, I've nailed this. Like 
you know, some of these topics might be a bit more boring. Like I remember I hosted a couple of times, like a workshop on intellectual property rights and accounting. But I was like, this is information that creative people need and isn't necessarily available, you know, freely or they don't know where to look to get it. And it's really, really important when when you're, you know, especially when you're self-employed. And so for me, I always gravitated towards that kind of practical information. And that was always kind of the aim of it. And I felt like it was sort of received quite well. And did you feel, or maybe you still feel the pressure today of this, you know, girl boss era? And, you know, we you talk about that in, in the book with lots of, you know, startup founded by, you know, female founder with, you know, a lot of pressure to grow very quickly, a lot of pressure to also work on your personal brand, to also be an influencer. And I think this has put a lot of, yeah, pressure on, on yeah, female founders and, and not necessarily for, you know, for the for the right reasons. Can you talk a little bit about this, like, you know, wave of, of, of feminism? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always quite sort of transparent about the fact that I'm pretty sure my deciding to go freelance and set up women who was definitely inspired by girl boss culture at the time, which was very much in the ascendancy. But there were also parts, and you know, there were parts of it that I thought were really good, which is kind of encouraging independence and in kind of being your own boss and doing your own thing and also giving women the confidence and the tools to to make a living for themselves. And, and I, I really took that from it. But then there are also parts of it that I found quite negative and, and quite alienating. That sort of like hustle culture, like you know, grind, grind till, you know, you sleep and, you know, work, you can sleep when you're dead kind of culture. And then also the parts of it that, as I say, were just kind of hashtag feminism, but not actually doing things that were really practical. And so that's why when I set mine up, I didn't want it to be just this like really fluffy platform where it's a lot of talk. I was like, okay, you're going to come here and you're going to sit down with a pen and paper and you're going to learn stuff. And that for me was always really, really important. I think there is definitely a pressure around girl boss culture, although I think it kind of seems to have died down. But when it was kind of at its peak, this idea that the only way to succeed was to be self-employed, which is never a message that I've agreed with. Self-employment isn't for everyone. And I did also create women who resources that were kind of split evenly between self-employed people and people who worked in a nine to five, because I think there's this idea that, oh my God, you're going to be a female founder and you're going to start raking in money and all this stuff. And I just, I just don't think that's realistic. And I, I don't think it's for everyone, but I, I definitely with women who for a while felt pressure to kind of aggressively scale it and grow, grow, grow. But then as I write in the book, I realized quite early on that I wasn't really willing to do the things that would, you know, enable that. Like I didn't want to charge loads for my events and I get people all the time be like oh my god you could charge double triple and I was like that's just not why I started it I didn't want to partner with brands really um I did very 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 few brand partnerships during the four years and it was only when a brand would essentially kind of give me money to host an event and not really interfere otherwise because when you work with brands there are all these strings attached and they start wanting you to kind of shoehorn in their product strap line. And I was like, this is corny. I'm like, if you want to support this and pay for me to host an event, because, you know, it does. And then it means I, I would pass those savings on to people who came because then I'm like, okay, well, the ticket's only five pounds or the ticket's free because somebody else is paying for it. So I realized eventually that in order to grow it, I probably just didn't have the right disposition 
for that. And also at the same time, my writing career was taking off and, and that was really kind of what I wanted to do overall. So I think it was becoming harder and harder to balance those two things. And it was important to me that I wasn't a martyr to this platform and a martyr to the cause. I was, I also want to do what I personally find fulfilling. And so I think that was also kind of a factor in me deciding to to wind it down because it, it, it took up so much time. And I just, I, you know, I wanted to spend most of my time writing or, or doing media work. But yeah, that whole narrative, yeah, I think there was the, there were good bits and there were bad bits, but I think the bad bits, you know, as we've seen in the wider culture kind of eventually started to kind of subsume the initial message, which was about independence and self-directed careers and became more about sort of posing on Instagram and, and signing flashy brand deals. And that wasn't really what, what I got into it for. You just bought your first property. So that's amazing. Congratulations. I guess that was, you know, Thank one of you. your financial goals. Can you tell me now where you're here today with your your amazing book and now, you know, what's what's next? What is success for you? If you want to just give me your, you know, your own definition and, you know, what are the things you, yeah, you, you enjoy doing? Sure. So I think for me, money is still always going to be a large part of how I you know, define my success or it's, it's a big goal for me, but I'm definitely of the mindset that I need to find a way to make the things that I want to do creatively pay. So that means writing, that means books, that means media work. And ultimately for me, the goal is creative fulfillment and putting out work that I think is important. And then it's trying to figure, as I say, trying to figure out a way to make those things pay. Um, because I've, you know, as I said, I've kind of achieved this this milestone, which is what I always wanted was to buy my own place. And that obviously comes with huge financial responsibilities. Like, you know, I want to do it up. It needs renovation, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, on a, on a, on a short term level, my immediate financial goals are, are paying for all of that. And, and, you know, also building up my savings again, because, you know, I spent most of them on a deposit and, and, and buying this flat. But in the long term, it really is about building like a body of work and, I think as with all creatives, the challenge is figuring out how to make a living out of that. Um, and I'm kind of halfway there, like, you know, I'm fine at the moment, but I also am quite aware of the fact that these successes can be quite short lived. Like you're only as good as your last book sometimes, you know, that, that, that is the reality of it. So I think for me, it's just, it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Like what, how am I going to navigate the next five years with that balance of, you know, financial ambition? but also professional and creative ambition. But, you know, it's like my financial ambitions, as I said right at the start, are really about security and freedom. I don't know, there's this really British thing where people were like, oh, and then I'll buy this flat and then I'll upgrade <laughs> and all of this. And I'm like, oh my God, no, <laughs> like this flat to me is security. So now I'm like, I want the freedom, for instance, to be able to work from different parts of the world. And so again, it's like setting that up financially so I can do that. And also setting my work up so I can do that. So, though, yeah, those are the questions that I'm still hashing out. But I feel lucky in that having achieved this one financial milestone because up until up until I bought it, that was the financial goal, and that's what I was saving up for, and that was what all of my work was kind of geared towards. And I still was still discerning with the work I took on, but I was also like, okay, you need this income in order to buy a flat, so you also need to bear that in mind. And now I feel more like 
as long as you can pay your bills, you can do, on top of that, you can do whatever you yeah. want. And that's a really that's good amazing. place to feel, to be. Thank you so much. Can I ask you three quick fire questions? What is the best financial decision you ever made? I think that was to begin saving as soon as I started working. So I started saving from my very first paycheck when I was 20, I was 20 years old when I started working as like a freelance, no, not even freelance, I was like temping as a receptionist. And that eventually led to my first full-time job. But even at that point, I didn't know what I was saving for, to be honest, because I didn't ever think I'd be able to, to buy a flat, but I just felt it was important to save. And so throughout my 20s, whenever, and obviously I saved different amounts depending on my living situation. Sometimes I was living at home with my parents. Other times I moved out, I was renting. Other times I wasn't working that much. But having savings was always really, really important to me. And the fact that I'd been saving for so long was really instrumental in allowing me to buy a flat because obviously in London you need like a, a quite sizable deposit. And so, yeah, I... I was very, very glad that I'd kind of had that mindset from from my early 20s because I think it ended up serving me really, really well as I reached the end of my 20s. And what is the worst financial decision you ever made? Uh, oh, God, this is tricky because I am generally quite cautious with money. I think actually maybe being a bit too cautious with money at points in my 20s, like I think I could have found a better balance between saving and also enjoying life. But because I was saving so aggressively... I definitely like didn't go to a few things like a friend's birthday trip to the countryside or whatever that in hindsight I could and should have done and would have enjoyed and wouldn't have severely impacted my finances. So I think it's just maybe having been a bit too tight with myself at points. And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? <laughs> Clothes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, aside from like my mortgage and stuff, um, it's definitely clothes. I, I am a bit a bit of a shopper <laughs> um so yeah I, I love fashion and and I like buying clothes I like buying shoes but um yeah part I, part of me I'm like okay you've you've earned this you can you can allow yourself a bit of fun well because thank you so much that was so nice to uh, to have the chat with you today is you there too. anything else you'd like to share or to recommend with people who are listening to this episode Um, aside from my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, that is it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You'll find the link to Otega's book in the show notes, as well as her Twitter and Instagram. Otega, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, good luck with publication. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Wallet. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please do share with a friend or on social media. It also takes two minutes to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcast, and this does really help. Thank you and chat to you next week.